Our scripture today comes to us from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 20. And we're at the end of Joseph's story here. Um, This is actually the climax of the story. So if you feel a little lost or caught in the middle, don't worry, I'll, I'll catch you up in the sermon. Then Joseph couldn't control himself in front of everyone standing before him. And he shouted, have everyone leave me. So there was no one with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Then he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer for him, for they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And Joseph said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me ahead of you to save lives. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me ahead of you to ensure for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay For you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then Joseph fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on Joseph's neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your livestock and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. And don't concern yourselves with your property, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Good and loving God, thank you again for your word. And God, thank you for just a few moments, set aside to meditate on it. Lord, I pray whatever words we would hear this morning would come from you and not from me. In Jesus' name, amen.
So I've, I've been meaning to kind of catch you all up on where we're at in this sermon series. Um, I've called this Thoughts on Being a Christian, and part of that is intentional because I, um, I just want to offer thoughts and I want to see what comes out of the text, and I'm not offering an exhaustive study on this. And so I'm just exploring what, what does it mean to be a Christian? What are some of the thoughts on Christianity that are arising out of these texts? And so if you were here with us the first week, we talked about call, curiosity, and gratitude. And this was sort of uh, the beginning of our adventure with God. We, we begin this walk, this journey with God, with Jesus, with a call sometimes. And we talked about how that call can look different based on different times in life, different seasons, different people. It can sound like a voice coming out of the clouds to you, or it can just feel like an epiphany that you had suddenly. Calls happen all the time in big ways, in small ways, but God is always speaking to us, always calling us forward to do more of the work of the kingdom. And we talked about curiosity, and we said that as, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we actually have to maintain a, a curious posture, we go into the world, and Jesus doesn't say, you know, follow me, and here's a map of everything that's going to happen, and we've got it all figured out, so don't worry about anything. We, we just get a follow me. Come and see what happens. Be open. Be curious. Be looking for where God is at work in the world. So we said we were called to be curious. And we also talked about gratitude, and we said that gratitude was really the, the foundation of, of all we do for God. I, I think a lot of times we get stuck in this duty mindset or this responsibility mindset or this is my job to do this for God because I owe God something. And I just, I don't think that that's true. I, I think we do the work that we do for God because of a response of gratitude in our own hearts and our own lives for the work that God has already done for us. So that was week one. And then last week we talked about uh, sustaining ourselves as Christians. How do we do that? Well, you plant yourself beside streams of living water, those things that give you life, that mysterious life force, that ineffable part of God that we can't quite describe or understand, those things that you are connected to that keep you going and give you life. Stay there. Don't be like the bush that's caught in the desert and parched and shriveling. This week we're going to talk about work as Christians and then next week, we're ending uh, the series on Transfiguration Sunday, which is the day when we celebrate Jesus' revelation of his true self, his whole self. And we'll talk about where we're headed as Christians and what we should be aiming for. This morning, we're going to talk about Joseph. And to really understand what's going on here, we really do need to begin at the beginning. So Joseph is... Well, he's kind of a punk, and there, there was a commentator that said that. I'm not just making that word up. He's kind of a punk, and he's a punk because he, he's favored by his father, Jacob, and the Bible says that he's favored because his son, Jacob's son, Joseph, Joseph was born when Jacob was still very old, and so there, there's something going on here where Jacob loves him more than the sons he had previously in his life. I don't know. It could be like a grandfatherly thing. Um, I, I don't know how many of you are guilty of this in this room, but uh, the way my mother treats her grandkids is not the way she treated her kids. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's something like that going on with, with Jacob and with Joseph. 
and, but Joseph knows it. Joseph's precocious enough that he knows what's going on here. And so he begins to brag to his brothers about it. And then one day Jacob brings Joseph this beautiful coat of many different colors. Many of you probably have heard of or seen Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. So he gets this coat and he shows it off to his brothers and this makes them even more jealous. Well, then one day, Joseph starts having these dreams, and Joseph has a, a gift of interpreting dreams. And in the dream, one of the dreams, he sees the sun, the moon, and the stars all bowing down before him. And so Joseph goes, and, and he tells his brother this dream. And he says to them, he says, hey, I, I just had this wonderful dream where everything in the universe was bowing down to me. And if you're an older brother, you're an older sibling, even a younger sibling, you don't want to hear your siblings say that because you, you know who they are. Well, this really enrages the brothers. And so a few of them plot to kill Joseph the next time they get the chance. They're going to murder him. They're going to be done with this little brat, this little punk. They're going to go, get away. Well, the day comes that they're going to do it. And Joseph is looking for them in the fields so that he can report back to his father. And something comes over uh, one of the older brothers, Reuben, and Reuben decides to try to convince the group, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill Joseph. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't murder our brother, guys. That didn't sound like the best idea. And um, he comes up with a plan. They're just going to sell him to this caravan that's passing by, make a little bit of money on their brother, get rid of him. They never have to see him again. Win-win for all parties, right? So the caravan comes by, they sell Joseph, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. The brothers make off with like 40 pieces of silver, and they're gone. And they tell Jacob, their father, that Joseph was tragically attacked by a wild animal, and they found his beautiful technicolor dream coat smeared with blood. Well, Joseph arrives in Egypt, and he is sold to Potiphar. And Potiphar is the chief of the palace guard. I don't quite know what this means, but this guy has a lot of responsibility, and he's involved in the affairs of Pharaoh and, and the city. And over time, Joseph begins to learn what Potiphar does, and he begins to ask questions and take on some responsibility. And pretty soon, Potiphar realizes that this guy, Joseph, he, well, he's pretty capable. He can, he can handle some responsibility. He can, he can think through complex tasks. He can problem solve. He's got some skills. And so he starts giving him more and more and more until pretty soon the text says something like Potiphar didn't make a single decision in the day except for what he wanted to eat. <laughs> this is how good Joseph is. He, do, he doesn't have to worry about, Potiphar doesn't have to worry about his job. He doesn't have to worry about the affairs of his house. He only has to wonder, huh, what am I going to eat? He's basically retired, right? Isn't that what retired people do? <laughs> you sit around and wonder what you eat. <laughs> so he, he gets all of the stature. He continues to grow. And then one day, Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph is actually a pretty good-looking guy. And she would really like to have some biblical relations with Joseph, if I can put it that way. And she propositions him. And he tells her no. My, he says, no, Potiphar's told me that I have all the responsibility out here and I can do this and this and this, but he has not told me that I can have you and I'm not going to do that because it would upset him. 
Well, this frustrates her. There's an interaction. He ends up running out. She grabs his robe on the way out. And then when Potiphar comes home, she frames Joseph and says, he tried to take advantage of me, tried to rape me. You got to do something about that. And so Potiphar has Joseph thrown in prison. Well, in prison, he meets these two people, the baker of the palace and the cupbearer to the pharaoh. And these two are kind of arguing when Joseph comes into the prison cell, and he asks them, what are you arguing about? And they're they're like, well, we're not really arguing. We're just trying to figure out these two dreams that we had that are kind of similar, and we can't figure out what they mean. And so he says, well, why don't you tell me the dreams, and I can maybe help you out. So the baker tells his dream, and then the cupbearer tells his dream. And if you want to read about these dreams, they're, they're in the text. I think they're around Genesis chapter 40. And I, I won't go into the detail of them, but Joseph listens to them and hears what they're saying and says, you know what? I think I know what's going on here. And he says to the cupbearer, he says, your dream means that in three days, you're going to be restored to your full stature. You're going to get your job back. You're going to be the cupbearer to the king, which, by the way, the cupbearer is the one that, like, tastes the wine before the king drinks it, not to make sure it's good, like at a fancy restaurant, (laughs) but to make sure that no one's going to die. So they are always risking their life. So he's going to get his wonderful job back in three days. This is good news for him. And the baker, unfortunately, his dream, according to Joseph, means that he's going to be executed in three days. And after three days, it all comes true. The baker is executed. The cupbearer is restored to his position. And Joseph is hoping that maybe, maybe he'll be remembered. Maybe he'll get a chance to plead his case. But he's forgotten. Time goes on, and he's a prisoner in this palace prison, and the prison guard, the the one actually over all of the prisoners, realizes, hey, this Joseph guy, he's pretty capable. He can handle responsibility. He can problem solve. He can take on complex tasks. And if I let him do that, I don't have to do any work. And so pretty soon, Joseph is in charge of all of the affairs of the prison. And he's administrating, he's doing this and that, and the prison guard has never had it so good. But the Pharaoh has a dream. And it's one of those dreams that sticks with you. Has anyone ever had a a recurring dream that just won't go away? Yeah. I had one as a kid. This is, it's kind of dark, but um, I had one that I I couldn't get out of my head. I, I would always wake up in this dream, and I'd be in this wide room, and in the middle of the room, there would be a bed, and it was one of those old four-post beds with, like, a canopy around it and, and a veil on every side, and the veil was, it was thinly veiled, and you could kind of see through it, and on the bed, there were all of these ceramic and, like, porcelain dolls. <laughs> I know, and it's so creepy, I know. Uh, I think I watched, like, a scary movie I shouldn't have at a young age, and it's just, like, burned in my mind, but in the dream, the, all of these dolls would be there, and I'd just be looking at them, and there'd be this great time that passed in the dream, what, what felt like a great time. And then all of a sudden, I'd hear these bells tolling in the dream. And after the third toll of the bell, all of the doll's eyes would, like, <laughs> you know, blink, and then they would start, like, walking after me. And then suddenly, I would just, poof, wake up, you know. That was my recurring dream. It has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Little rabbit trail. Well, Pharaoh has this recurring dream, and he, can't, he cannot get it out of his head. 
And so he calls uh, his magicians and he says to the magicians, hey, can you, can you figure this out for me? Because I can't, I can't understand this dream. And he tells them the dream and the magicians are like, ah, we got nothing for you. So he calls in the sorcerers and the sorcerers, they don't know anything. And so he calls this local pastor to figure it out. And the local pastor also has no idea what's going on with Pharaoh. And he's at a loss, but he knows he needs to figure out the meaning of this dream. Well, the cupbearer overhears Pharaoh kind of struggling over this and remembers Joseph. And he says to Pharaoh, he says, hey, there's this guy, Joseph, that I met in prison. He might, he might be able to help you out. I don't know if you want to take the risk, but he made my dream. <laughs> he interpreted my dream correctly. And so Joseph comes up. He's standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him the dream. Pharaoh says, in this dream, I was standing at the bank of a great river, and the water was full, and out of the river came onto the bank these seven cows. These cows were huge, huge, huge cows, and they began eating on the lush grass that was along the bank, and they ate there for a very long time, the Pharaoh said. And after a while, while they were still eating, seven more cows came out of this great river, but these cows, they weren't so fat, they were actually lean and gaunt and looked kind of sickly. And they began eating the cows that were eating the grass. And even after they had devoured these other seven cows that were eating at the bank, those skinny cows didn't grow in size. They remained skinny and gaunt and sickly. So Joseph hears the stream and sits back and he says to Pharaoh, well, I don't know if I can interpret this, but with God's help, I think I can. And he says, I think that the dream means that there are going to be seven years of abundance with the crops in our lands. There's going to be so many crops, we're not even going to be able to count them, Joseph says. And there's going to be seven years of that, but then after that, there's going to be seven years of famine. And there's going to be a lot of devastation. There's going to be a lot of poverty. And this worries Pharaoh. He says, well, if this is to come true, how could we fix this? How could we solve this? And Joseph says, well, if I were going to solve it, I would begin saving a bunch of grain now. I would actually build some storehouses in all of these other cities, and I would begin to make a plan for how could we save all of this grain and then meet it out according to how many people needed it when there was a famine in the land. And he, he sort of just ad-libs this whole plan to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh likes it and says, you know what? <laughs> Why don't you come do that for us? <laughs> you seem to have it figured out. And right there, Pharaoh stoops down and, and gives Joseph his ring and he says to Joseph look you're second in command in all of Egypt and even though I'm the Pharaoh of Egypt nothing that is done in this city will happen unless it goes through you I'm putting you over everything and so Pharaoh takes the prisoner out of prison and makes him for all intents and purposes a king Well, the seven years of plenty come, and actually they do begin uh, this like accounting system. They're trying to figure out how much grain they have, where they have it stored, and all this. And they have so many crops that they're harvesting that they can't count it. <laughs> the Bible says it's like the, the grains of sand on the seashore. It's uncountable. And so they've got all of this food, and they're storing it up, and they go through the seven years, and then 
Just as Joseph predicted in his interpretation of the dream, the famine strikes. And we're two years into the famine where our text picks up today in chapter 45. It's two years into the famine and Jacob has learned that in Egypt there is grain and so he sends 10 of his now 11 sons to Egypt to purchase grain and he says to them, go buy some of this because otherwise we are going to starve. And so the brothers show up in Egypt and they have to go before Joseph to get their grain because everything now goes through Joseph. When they arrive at Joseph, Joseph immediately recognizes them, and he knows that there's only ten there, and he's wondering about his brother Benjamin. And so he actually accuses them of being spies, even though he knows they're his brothers and they're telling the truth. He says, I know you guys are spies. You're, you're here to try to figure out how you can steal our grains. I'm not going to trust you. If you really are ten of eleven brothers, you'll go back home, and you'll bring that eleventh brother to me. And so he kind of tests them. And they go and they do as, as Joseph says, and there's, there's more details that I'm, I'm glossing over here, but they come back with their brother. There's a little bit more drama, and then soon Joseph, I think, breathes this great sigh of relief and realizes that he's going to have to forgive his brothers. Or maybe he already has forgiven his brothers. But he invites them to this great feast and he sits them around this great table and he puts them in order of their birth, which they kind of perk up at. And they're like, oh, well, he knows how we were birthed or how does he know? (laughs) They're kind of confused and they're they're catching on to something here. And Joseph sits there and they're, they're having a meal and then chapter 45 picks up where he cannot contain it any longer. And he says to them, guys, I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. I'm the one that you sold to the Egyptians. I'm the one that you wanted to kill. There's a lot of weeping, which I'm sure you saw in the text. There's a lot of hugging. There's a lot of kissing. There's a lot of sorries that are spoken. And Joseph says to them, he says, look, don't, don't be angry at yourselves. Don't be mad at what you've done. Because look what God did with it. Look what God did with everything that you intended for evil. Look what God did to turn it and make it good. What a beautiful example of forgiveness. I want to pause there just for a second to say, you know, It's easy for us on the outside to look at a story like this and say, oh yeah, everyone should forgive people like that, right? If you've been really, really wronged, you've got to forgive people. But if you're not in that situation and you don't know, I don't know if it's for us to judge that someone should forgive. So did Joseph do the right thing? Yeah, but if he didn't do the right thing, would anyone blame him? I don't know. But he forgives them. And he sees what God is up to He reconciles with his family, and now his father, who thought he lost his beloved son, gets to be with him in his old age, gets to spend time with him again. And his father gets to see his whole family come together again. And I didn't really understand the significance of this passage until I was speaking to my father recently, and he's, you know, he's really not that old yet, but he's... um, 
Uh, he's retired and he's got a lot of time on his hands and so he's, he's doing a little too much thinking sometimes, I think. But he keeps telling me, he's like, he's like, Garrett, the family's the most important. Family's the most important. All I care about is just spending time with you guys. So however I can do that, I want to I wanna do that. I saw a lot of Jacob in my father, that desire to see the family come together again, that desire to end the fighting, that desire to end the conflict and just spend time together. And now Jacob is going to get that, and Joseph gets to be with his family, and the brothers don't have to struggle to find food because Joseph has already provided for that. So what does this have to do with being a Christian? I think Joseph is a great example for all of us about the work that we are collectively called to as Christians. We are all invited to partake and to uh, participate in the work of God, and I think that work generally can be defined as reconciliation, forgiveness, and grace. And all of that I think we might be able to term as a kind of liberation. And I want to follow James Cone, the theologian here, in saying that any Christianity, any Christian that is not involved somehow in the work of liberation may not be Christianity at all. He says something like any Christian theology that's not concerned with the act of liberation for God and God's people is not Christian theology. Christians are called to be involved in this work of liberation, and it can look so many different ways. For Joseph, we get the example of a good king, a wise king, someone who has been entrusted with a great many things and has actually, I think, followed through on his responsibilities. Joseph shows us what forgiveness looks like, not just on an individual level when he apparently doesn't scorn the cupbearer for not remembering him right away, but keeping him in prison. He doesn't hold on to that grudge that he has with his family to the bitter end. He lets go of it. And he's not bitter about the country that had done so much wrong to him. He actually formulates a plan to save them. And so on the individual level, on the family level, and on the societal level, we see Joseph administering grace, working toward reconciliation, and forgiving. And I think we're all called to that work, no matter where we are. It doesn't have to be your job. You don't have to get paid for it. But it is something you have to focus on if you're on this journey with God. And so my question for you this morning is this. Where are the opportunities for forgiveness in your life? Who are the people that you might be thinking of right now to say, you know what, we might need to work on some forgiveness there. And it might not be that, you know, they need to forgive you or you need to forgive them. You don't even need to work that out, but it might just be, you know, this is a situation, there might be some forgiveness that's needed here. There might be some reconciliation that can happen. Where are those in your life? Where can you administer grace to those that are around you, whether on an individual level, whether in your family unit, or whether in society. Where is God calling you to do this work of liberation? Will you pray with me? Good and loving God, thank you for the example of Joseph.
Thank you for the good king, the wise king, the one who has been changed, the one who forgives. God, would you help us to be people that can administer grace, that can forgive those that need forgiveness. God, would you reconcile us to one another so that we may continue to build your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.